as we've been seeing, the, um, the book of Leviticus might be best labeled a manual for holiness. And so it lays out not merely the uh, sacrificial system and the consecration of the priesthood, um, but in the second half of the book, where we've been spending our time the last few weeks, it talks about um, holy living for the people of Israel. And now it's going to take, uh, take a step back, and it's going to talk about what I don't know what else to call except holy things. Okay? And so uh, anything that is in this class of holiness. And so we'll talk about things that the priests as people are and are not allowed to do. Um, who it is who can eat the offerings um, that are available to the priests, because remember, those are, being, uh, are made holy. We'll talk about holy time, both the Sabbath and the seven festivals that make up the year of Israel, these times set aside for the worship of God. Um, we will talk about, um, uh, right, God's holy name. And, and that seems to be what ties everything together tonight. It's all focusing on, on how we handle things that are holy. And it begins with the priests. Chapter 21, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. Okay, now notice who he's addressing here. He's talking specifically to the priesthood, the sons of Aaron, and he says that for them... When death comes into the family, because they're on duty, because they're priests, they have to do something different. And so again, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him, because she has had no husband, for he may make himself unclean. And so the list here is basically immediate family. You may notice that his wife is missing. More than likely, his wife is missing because, as it says in Genesis, a husband and wife become one flesh. So it's implied um, that she fits into this context. But beyond that, um, those of his household, his own children, um, and possibly a sister who's unmarried and living with them, these are the only ones, effectively, that the priests are allowed to attend the funeral. Now, it doesn't make, uh, it doesn't clarify for us if this is only while they're on duty or in general, okay? As we've seen before, one of the things that makes people unclean are things associated with death, which of course would include death itself. Um, I have reason to believe, however, that this is talking about primarily if someone dies while a priest is serving at the tabernacle. As we'll see in just a little bit, he can't leave his post, okay? Now, the emotional challenge of this, I'm going to take as self-evident. Yes, he has an exception for his immediate family, but only for his immediate family. Uh, his own, I want to make sure I'm right here, um, his own parents, his brothers and sisters, and his own children and his wife. That's basically uh, the only things that are covered here. And he continues on, he says in verse 4, he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. Uh, and then he, it continues in verse 5, they shall not make bald patches on their head nor shave off the edges of their beards nor make any cuts on their body. Now we saw last week that all three of these practices 
cutting for the dead, and then a particular way of shaving your head or your beard has to do not just with mourning, but practices involving the dead, pagan funeral practices that are religious in nature. And so not only are they not allowed uh, to attend funerals, but their mourning is to be um, clearly unpagan. And then it goes on and it says in verse 6, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offering, uh, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. And so notice the emphasis here um, is only on their role. And I think this is something that when we read the Bible, not only should we keep in mind, but we should probably learn from. Everything that this holy and uh, common, clean and unclean code involves has ultimately to do with symbolism, not pragmatism. We generally want the do's and do nots of our life to be determined solely by motive and outcome. And so we look at this and we go, what's so wrong with this? But what's wrong with it is that the priest is a living picture. He's a representation of holiness. Uh, And so in his role, there's not to be any death. There's not to be any mourning. Uh, He continues on, he says in verse 7, They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Now, it'd be easy just to see this as a high sexual relationship standard for the priest, and that's probably part of what's going on. All of the women have in common here um, have some sort of sexual relationship, so maybe even the divorce that's mentioned here is a divorce for negative reasons, and so they're they're to be pure of these things. But there is another layer to keep in mind. Remember that the priesthood in Israel is not determined um, by the school that you went to or uh, by election according to the people. You're a priest because you're a son of a priest, right? There's a line, the family of Aaron and his sons who are the priesthood. And what all of these other folks have in common is questionable progency, okay? Questionable just in the sense that imagine he marries a divorced woman who has a son, Can that son now serve as a priest because his dad is a priest? These questions are completely set aside. And it's worth mentioning, even when we look at the realities of monarchy, right, blood reign, that when this stuff gets messy, it's prone to abuse. It's prone to these things. And so because they're to be holy, because they're to be separate, and because the symbolism of the priesthood uh, requires it, they're to maintain their lineage, Now, why is that important to the symbolism? One of the things that the book of Hebrews points out is that nobody became a priest unless they were chosen by God, okay? There's there's nothing more arbitrary than the fact that you were born into the family, right? In fact, some priests, as we'll see, that's not enough. There's still disqualifications here. But as it emphasizes in the book of Hebrews, it's only those who are chosen by God as priests. And remember that part of what the priesthood does is they picture this future coming Messiah, God's chosen one. And so there's a holiness code for the relationships that they have for what happens within their own family. Um, verse 8, you shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. 
And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Now, you should read that as being extreme, because it is, okay? Um, priesthood, as we saw last week, is condemned in Israel. It's not something there to put their daughters into. But for the priesthood, um, the stakes are higher, and once again, burned with fire here probably doesn't speak of the punishment itself, but what happens after the punishment. The, the usual death performed in Israel for capital punishment is being stoned to death, but like we see in the story of Achan and his family in the book of Joshua, after that, the bodies were burned. It's the same thing here. It's speaking of the seriousness. Now, why is that such a big deal? Once again, it's not surprising to expect there to be uh, a line of sexual holiness involved here, but on top of that, what, what you may not be familiar with is in the ancient Near East, okay, so in the time and place that the Bible was written, prostitution was not just something you'd find in the red light district, it's also something you'd find in the temples, okay? Religious prostitution where a priest or a priestess would also be a prostitute was incredibly common. In fact, uh, Israel is the only nation who's uh, constantly maintained a distance between sex and religion. Okay? Now, to be totally frank, the Bible declares that sex is part of God's plan, something that he blesses. He's the creator of both gender and sexuality. But unlike all of the religions in Israel's area, God is not a sexual being. If you read the creation stories of the Babylonians or the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians, you'll find that the world that, uh, that we live in, according to these stories, was created through violence and sex, okay? Through great wars between gods and then the loser was cut into pieces and made into parts of the planet, through sexual intercourse and then they birthed other gods or the children of men, these types of things. And so in that context, you'll see a hardline border between what happens in the tabernacle and sexuality because of this natural drift. And it's intriguing that this temptation of worshiping in these religions that were not merely idolatrous but also sexually aberrant is something that chases Israel throughout their whole history. So, for example, the prophets turn to the picture of Israel being an unfaithful wife, as if God had been a faithful husband and they've been an unfaithful wife. But when he articulates the places where they've broken the covenant, it's not merely worship being portrayed in a sexual metaphor sense, although sometimes it's tremendously explicit, but also sexual acts on behalf of pagan gods. These things are intermingled in Israel's history. Uh, and so inside the cult of Israel, inside the tabernacle, inside the priesthood, we constantly find a distance of these things. There's to be no confusion that God, like the other gods, is basically just men and women, you know, on a more divine level, um, as capricious and as sexual and as violent. And so the priest as representative maintains a distance here. Verse 10. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments. Who is that referring to? The high priest, right? So we've been talking about the priesthood in general, and now it says now, for the high priest, and it continues in um, here, it says specifically, 
that he shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. Verse 11, he shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean even for his father or for his mother. So there's an even higher standard for the high priest. He's not to be around funerals, or funerals at all. And you may say, but his immediate family, sure. No, don't forget, this is Israel where one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. If it says not even your father and mother, that means for nobody, okay? And what it says here is not just that he's avoid, to avoid pagan practices of mourning, but normal Jewish practices of mourning. He's not to let his hair hang loose. Um, he's not to, um, to tear his clothes. Those are the normal Jewish things that you would see at any Jewish wedding. They were natural ways of Jewish mourning. But he is not, uh, not to publicly, this is important, publicly mourn his dead. It doesn't mean that he has to main some, maintain some sort of stoic impression. But the distance that's to be maintained here publicly means that he can't do the usual customary public ways uh, of mourning. It says in verse 12, he shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And so you see here he has to stay at his post because his job is just that important. Okay? The idea here is that the priesthood has a role to play and it's not optional. It's not temporary. Right? They can't hang a sign out front and say be back tomorrow. Um, the priesthood was on rotation eventually, and so it's not that they served all the time 24-7, but when they were on, they were on. And that's because this representation that the priesthood was, was to be constantly maintained. And the sacrificial system, remember, that involved not merely morning and evening sacrifices and keeping the lamps lit, as we'll see tonight, 24 hours a day, and making sure the bread was replaced every week. All of these things were to be continual. Okay, without pausing. And so um, there's a significance here that I think can be a stumbling block for us, can be profound, but it's not really that different than what Jesus taught. Jesus, when he called people to follow him, said, unless you hate your mother and father more than me, you cannot be my disciples. And we hear that, and it bothers us, and it should, but there's something that's worth remembering. When love and hate are used together, in our Bible, both in the Hebrew Bible as well as in the New Testament by Hebrew speakers like Jesus, like Paul. It's always a contrastive comparison. So love and hate means you will choose one if you have to make a choice. Okay? It doesn't mean that you, um, you hate your parents in the term of despising them. In fact, one of the places where Jesus challenged the religious leaders of his day is that on behalf of worshiping God, they neglected their parents, okay? Remember, Israel had no form of social security, no form of government taking care of the elderly. That was on the family. But what happened was some Pharisees went, you know what? I'm going to call all of the money that I would have used to support my family Corbin, a gift to God, and I'm going to give it to God instead of taking care of my parents. And Jesus criticized that. He criticized that. He said, you've taken a tradition of men and thrown out the clear commandment of God to honor your parents. And so when he says, unless you, uh, unless you hate your parents, 
uh, we can understand it in the way that Mark puts us for it. Remember, Mark is translating for a non-Jewish audience, and so what he says is, you cannot love your husband or your wife or your mother or your father or your brother or your son more than me. Basically, what we see in the priesthood here and what Jesus wants us to recognize in the New Testament is, is a simple policy that we can just call God first. Okay. That the greatest and final allegiance in our life has to be oriented towards God. And that's especially true with the priesthood. You see, Jesus' ministry, the life that he was called to in the Messiah, was hard on his family. Have you ever noticed that? His brothers and his mom come to him and go, hey, we got to take you home. This is just crazy. And so this message is carried in this packed house where Jesus is preaching, and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of the Father. He speaks very strongly there, right? Even in, um, in the words that Simeon, this old man in the temple, speaks to Mary and Joseph, he turns to Mary and he goes, Mary, this is going to be rough. The Messiah is here to die, but a sword will pierce your heart also. And so he's got this role to play, and so his family has to take a second seat. It's the same with the priesthood here, okay? And so we continue here, verse 13. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. Notice that included on that list, unlike the rest of the priests, was a widow, okay? So even somebody who had married and not broken the covenant of marriage and her husband had died, that's off limits here. But like I said, most likely that has to do with progency. Most likely that has to do with offspring. Uh, he shall not marry, but he shall take his, as his wife a virgin of his own people. That doesn't mean just a Jew. It also means a Levite, okay, from his own family, from his own tribe, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Have you heard that repeated refrain? We've seen it three times now. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Simply put, that just means because I've set him apart. Because he has a role to play. Because he has a job to do and an office to fulfill. Verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man uh, draw near, sorry, a man blind or lame or one who is mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf of a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. Okay, so if there's any sort of visible blemish, they don't qualify to, what it says here is to offer the bread. In other words, they can't be the priests who go into the holy place. Okay. Now, there's quite a few jobs for the Levites that go above and beyond the sacrifices. But when it refers to those who enter the holy place and offer the bread, it's talking about the sacrificing priests. And it says, and it makes a list here of 12 different um, disfigurements or disabilities that disqualify them. Okay, why? Once again, it comes back to symbolism. Okay. One of the things you'll notice when you read the book of Leviticus is there seems to be a correlation between wholeness with a W-H and holiness, okay? That uh, just like the sacrifices were to be without blemish, blemish and the bones were to be unbroken, so also the priesthood is to be without blemish, okay? Now, these are really just external symbols of an internal reality. 
okay? So for example, when we look at leadership in the New Testament in the book of Titus or in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's a higher standard that's given for uh, what the Bible calls bishops or, or simultaneously calls priests or uh, pastors or sometimes overseers, those who are leading in the church, the elders, okay? And what uh, the standard it maintains for them is higher than, for example, church membership, okay? We see that here with the priesthood as well, but it's especially important with the priests, okay? Because when Jesus comes, he comes as a, not just a perfect sacrifice. In fact, John points out that just like the bones of the Passover sacrifice were not to be broken, so also when Jesus was on the cross, despite the fact that they would, out of mercy, generally break the legs of those who were crucified so they could no longer lift themselves up and uh, slow the process of death. Uh, by the time they got to Jesus, he was already dead. And so outside of normal habit, he died without any bones being broken, and it connects it with the Passover sacrifice. Those externalities are pointing to an internality, though, right? The fact is that Jesus was not just without disfigurement or disability. He was truly holy, not just unclean on the outside, but through and through, without blemish, without uncleanness. And so the priesthood, uh, anyone who has these issues is disqualified, not from eating from the food of the priests, not from helping in the other roles that belong to the Levitical priests, but for the ones who operate the sacrifices, the ones who have part of the symbolism to play in Israel's worship, the ones who partake of the sacrifice to proclaim that the sacrifice has been received, Anyone who has these disfigurements is disqualified. Verse 21, No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things. But he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. Okay. Now, here we've been talking about the, the holy requirements, if you will, for the priesthood. Now it moves on to what happens to food when it becomes holy. You may remember that many of the sacrifices were only partially burnt upon the altar, and the rest was the, um, the payment for the priests and their family. And so the question it deals with here in the beginning of chapter 22 is, who can and cannot eat that food now that it serves such a holy purpose, right? It was just a clean animal, a calf or a sheep or a goat, but once it becomes a sacrifice, it becomes a holy animal. It enters into a new category. So chapter 22, verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. Okay? And so he says, all of the things that are dedicated, anything that's in holy, if a priest is in a status of unclean, remember all the things we read about that put you in that category, encountering a carcass, um, uh, some sort of a seminal emission or, uh, or leprosy, all of these things, if they're in that category, they are not allowed in the tabernacle, which is a helpful thing to point out. Technically, nobody's allowed in the tabernacle in these conditions. 
What we learn here, though, is that the priests don't get a pass just because they're the priests, right? And so there's a warning here that they're not to do that. It continues in verse 4. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. So this isn't just true of the artifacts that make up the tabernacle, not just the major furniture, but the utensils of the tabernacle that are set apart and the tabernacle itself, but also the food. They're not to partake of this food since it's become holy if they're in the condition, condition of being unclean. Um, he continues on, he says, whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with a dead or a man who's had an emission of semen and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he's made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until evening and he'll not eat of the holy things unless he's bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean and afterwards he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat of what dies, of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And so once again to summarize, we see the same standard already laid out for the average Israelite, but we see here that it also refers to the priests. Verse 10, a lay person shall not eat of the holy thing, nor foreign guest of the priest, or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave and his property, as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of the food. Okay, so in other words, his household. Anyone who's under his care, anyone who lives with him, the food is part of his payment, and so it's to take care of those people. Verse 12, if a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced or has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add a fifth of its value to give the holy thing to the priest." Okay, so if you've got a guest over for dinner and they help themselves to your fridge and they eat of a sacrifice, okay, it's something that impacts them. It changes their status. It makes them uh, not only unclean, but they have to make a, uh, a recompensation here, uh, a fifth of its value and give the holy thing to the priest. Verse 15, they shall not profane the holy thing of the people of Israel which they contribute to the Lord and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Okay, so we've seen acceptable priests. We've seen um, acceptable handling of the holy things, uh, acceptable people to eat of the holy food, and now it moves on to acceptable offerings. Now, what we're about to read here is somewhat similar to stuff we've already read in the first five chapters of Leviticus, but it's organized all together here to make the same point we've already been seeing, this point of wholeness, verse 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners of Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be acceptable or accepted to you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls and a sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be expect, accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. 
Now, this is all stuff we already know, but it's setting us up to make exceptions, okay? But the general policy is if you're offering it to the Lord, it should be without blemish. Now, there's a practical worship phenomenon of this that, uh, that makes sense of this that's worth pointing out, which is that Israel's worship was to be costly, okay? And so it can be really convenient to go, oh, man, my ox just went lame. Well, I guess I'll give it to God. I'll get the religious credit of offering it to God, but it doesn't cost you as much anymore. If I can be really honest, it's like dumping your crappy furniture in front of the church, and now we can use it, right? I'll give it to Jesus, okay? But more than that, remember here that these sacrifices serve a symbolic purpose. The reason they're to be without blemish is to, because they're supposed to stand for perfection, for innocence. Unlike us, as unclean and, and sinful, the sacrifice that we need has to be perfect, okay? Something that's already condemned to die can't stand in for someone else condemned to die, right? You don't see peop- uh, prisoners on death row who go, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we convince the guard to let you go and I'll serve both our sentences? I'll die for both of us, right? That doesn't work. In the same way, the sacrifices as a standard were to be without blemish. It continues here. Verse 22, animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. So it makes a distinction here. If you want to give an animal as a free will offering to the Lord, remember these free will offerings are part of the fellowship offering. This is the one that you would actually have a feast in the court of the tabernacle with your invited family. And so here, if it's just one leg is longer than the other, that's not really an issue. But it can't stand in as a sin offering or a guilt offering or a burnt offering just for the fellowship offering and even, even not for a vow offering. Okay? The other reason people would bring a fellowship offering is because they had just completed a vow. Okay? And there it would be inappropriate because the vow uh, at the end of it is a proclamation, a proclamation of rededication to the Lord, of entering back into relationship. And so that disqualifies a vow offering. Uh, Verse 24, any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Now, once again, we can see a practical reason of that. What does it mean if your male animal is somehow messed up in the genitals? No more offspring, right? In terms of breeding, it's now of no use to you. But more importantly, as we've seen consistently, it has to do with the fact that this is the God who is life, okay? And uh, if you go back to the book of Genesis, what's the constant refrain for both animals and for human beings? Be fruitful and multiply, right? And so So a sacrifice like this goes against the grain of who God is, and so it's disqualified. Verse 25, Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animal gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation. They will not be accepted for you. Okay. Um, Now, to be honest, I don't know exactly what that means. It may be pointing to um, a general practice of castration. It may be pointing to something like branding. Um, But the idea here is there's some correlation between how foreigners handled these animals and mutilation. There's something that others did that instantly disqualified animals from their use. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. 
okay? So there's such a thing as too young. It's to uh, be with its mother till seventh days, and then on the eighth day it becomes acceptable. But, verse 28, you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And so the exception here is they can't bring the mother and child and offer it, right? They can't bring the parent and their offspring and on the same day offer it. Now we read that and it sounds cruel and maybe that's enough of a significance in it. If you see anything is, uh, in the book of Leviticus about how it views death, there's a clear standard of the sanctity of life. It greatly values life. That might be a surprise to you considering animals are always dying, but... But those deaths are to be weighed as incredibly significant, right? In fact, Israel, until they get into the land, they're not allowed to kill their animals for food unless they bring it to the tabernacle, okay? So it's greatly limiting on the animals that die. Um, And so here this standard is that they're not to do both at the same time. Verse 29, when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it till morning. I am the Lord. Okay, and so we've read that before. It just says that the thanksgiving offering, which is another of the fellowship offerings, has to be consumed on the same day. So, verse 31, you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. And so notice once again where this is rooted, both in who God has made Israel, they're set apart, they're holy, they're for a purpose, and in who God is. I am the Lord, I am holy, and I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, as we turn to chapter 23, chapter 23 focuses on Israel's calendar and specifically the holy days of Israel's calendar. And so it will begin with the Sabbath, and then it will lay out the seven festivals that make up Israel's year. Now, if you're real smarty pants when it comes to the Bible, you'd know that Israel actually celebrates more than seven festivals, okay? But Purim, this festival uh, that Israel celebrates, doesn't come into existence until the days of Esther. And then Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights, doesn't come in until what we call the intertestamental period. It has to do with a celebration of the victory of the Maccabees, which happens after the Old Testament is finished. But these seven are inaugurated in the days of Moses before they enter the land, and they make up the religious calendar of Israel. Now, just so you can think through this, basically these festivals clump around two areas of Israel's calendar. The beginning, the spring, and the fall. Okay, and so, in fact, the last three festivals all happen in the same month, okay, and the first four are all closely together as well. So let's look at them together. Chapter 23, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Okay, that just means holy occasions or sometimes holy gatherings. Uh, They are my appointed feasts. So just as Israel, or just as we today have a holiday calendar, right, we have national holidays and we take days off, so it was with Israel, but instead of us or Hallmark coming up with the holidays, these are divine appointed. He lays out their calendar, okay? The first one it mentions here is the Sabbath, verse 3, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, 
a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, it can be hard for us to remember that in the ancient world, day-offs were not common. Okay? They weren't really a part of the weekly schedule of the ancient world. In fact, even in our day, we tend to think of our weekend as being Saturday and Sunday. That's because of the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Sabbath, which was upgraded to Sunday with the resurrection. And so both were honored early in our culture, and that's where we get the two days off. Okay? Um, but in the ancient world, and especially in Israel's history as slaves in Egypt, there was no rhythm of one day in six which was taken off. There was no weekend for Israel. And so he calls them here to take a Sabbath, and in the two articulations of the Ten Commandments, one which we've already hit in our study in the book of Exodus chapter 20, and the other when it's repeated in Deuteronomy, give differing reasons for the, for the commandment to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. One of them in Exodus points out there to keep it holy because in six days God created the earth and on the seventh he rested. And so there's a paradigm, a divine paradigm that's set up that they're supposed to keep. On top of that, Exodus tells us that it's to be a mark of the covenant. Okay? And so the two symbols of the covenant, the two things that you should look at somebody and go, oh, clearly they're Jewish, is that they practice on their young the act of circumcision and that they honor the Sabbath. Okay, these were the earmarks of the covenant, the visible signs of the covenant. But when you read in Deuteronomy, when it gets to the fourth statement for the Sabbath, it roots it in a different phenomenon. It says, for you were slaves in Egypt and I delivered you out. Okay, and so one has to do with who God is as creator. The other has to do with who God is as redeemer. And so here, every, sixth, uh, every seventh day, which, like I said, would begin Friday night at sundown and go through Saturday night at sundown, so we'll call it Saturday. Every seventh day of the week was to be a holy day, and the thing that's emphasized in every passage is that they were not to work. Okay. In fact, not only were they not to work, but their children were not to work, any foreigners living in Israel were not to work, their servants or their slaves were not to work, Okay. The Sabbath was to be an expression of freedom, and so it couldn't just become slightly moved oppression. Okay. Now, this is made a big deal of. This is the only ritual command that makes it into the Ten Commandments. Okay. All of the other commandments are rooted in moral behavior, but this one honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, has to do with the covenant. It has to do with ritual. And it's one that Jesus had a lot of conversations about in his ministry. I'll remind you of just a couple of occasions. For example, one of the things that frustrated the Pharisees about Jesus' ministry is that he would heal people on the Sabbath. Now, if you read the Gospels, Jesus healed people all the times of all sorts of different things. And there's an occasion, in fact, where he heals someone in the synagogue and the leader of the synagogue comes forward and calms the crowd. And instead of rebuking Jesus, rebukes the crowd. And he says, there's six other days to get healed on. The seventh day is for rest. Don't come and get healed. Right? Which is kind of funny. It's like, that's the thing you want to talk about? You've just seen somebody miraculously healed in your midst. And you want to go, hey, this is against the rules. This is against our regulations. But things got so heated that there was an occasion where Jesus knew they would respond this way and they had planted a man with a withered hand in front of Jesus on the Sabbath. And so he looks at the man and then he looks him in the eye and he says, let me ask you a question or how I always hear it in my mind. Riddle me this. 
Jesus says, let's see if I can remember what he says. I can't remember what he says. But basically, Jesus maintains that healing is appropriate to the Sabbath. Okay. On another occasion, there's a woman who's been bound for years and years, bent over. Okay. And he sets her free and he goes, what could be more appropriate on the Sabbath than this woman who's been bound by Satan for such a long time being freed from this anomaly? Here's another way that Jesus interacted with the religious of his day about the Sabbath. On one occasion, he and his disciples were cutting through a grain field. And they had taken some of the wheat and they were rolling the chaff off and then chewing on the wheat. Okay? They were doing lunch on the go. And the Pharisees criticized Jesus for that. And they said, hey, you're not supposed to harvest on the Sabbath. Now, if you're not familiar with, um, with the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament, that may sound a little bit silly. But the Jews had spent extensive time considering what counted as work and didn't count as work on the Sabbath. And anything that involved grain going from a process of being on a plant to being digestible was considered harvesting, was considered work. And Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. He says, do you remember what David did when he was on the run and he came to the priest at the tabernacle and said, have you any food? And the priest at the tabernacle said, well, all I have is the table of showbread bread, the bread of the presence, these 12 loaves that are set apart and laid before the Lord once a week and then eaten by the priests. And he goes, that'll do. That's what David says. Uh, that's my paraphrase. Um, and the guy says, well, if your men have kept themselves from women, in other words, as long as there's nothing sexually aberrant going on, and he allows them to eat, Okay. And he points to that as an illustration, and this is the application he makes. He says, for the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Okay? So the idea here is not that God created a seventh day of rest and went, now I should create people who have to keep it. Right? The Sabbath is supposed to be a gift. It's supposed to be something that's given. And so when we tie that to the story of David, what do we learn? That there are times of severe need that disqualify the rules of Sabbath. Okay? That if it's something that, that leads to burden or constrains or leads to death, Jesus says you're missing the whole point. Okay. Now, that brings up an interesting question, which is, uh, for one, if the Sabbath was on Saturdays, why do we as Christians generally observe Sundays as a day of worship and rest? And the reason is because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, Sunday. And when we look at the practice of the New Testament church, constantly we find them gathering on the first day of the week, okay? In other words, they recognize the significance of Jesus' resurrection happening on a Sunday, and so although they continued to go to the temple and the synagogue on Saturdays, they also started gathering uniquely as Christians on Sundays. Now, there's a theological significance in that too, okay? If you read the book of Hebrews, it will talk about the fact that God's got a program or a plan of rest. And then it was a whole lot bigger than just one day a week. In fact, as we'll see as we get into the book of Deuteronomy, not only every seventh day was to be a day of rest, but every seventh year they weren't to do any harvesting at all. As a nation, they were to take the entire year off. And not only that, but every seventh, seventh year 
So the 49th year would be followed by another year off that not only would be a second year in a row where they wouldn't harvest, but it would also be known as the year of Jubilee, which means all debts would be canceled, all slaves would be set free, all, all of this would be reversed and restored, the land would come back into those who had had to sell it off um, because of their debts. Um, and so, so there was supposed to be this rhythm in Israel's life of rest. Now, what the author of Hebrews points out is that's God's whole plan, but when they get to the book of Numbers, what God says to Israel is they will not enter my rest. He says, I have a plan that's rest, but they're not going to make it. And the author of Hebrews goes on and he says that we have a rest that we can enter into now. Not one off there that we're waiting for, but one we can enjoy now. So what does that have to do with the twitch from Saturday to Sunday? In the Jewish work week, you were working for the weekend. But in the Christian work week, you begin with a place of rest. Okay? Now that's theologically significant for just this reason. Because what God has done through Jesus Christ is so sufficient that we start at the finish line. Okay, with the work already done. And so we work from a place of rest. I love how Timothy Keller talks about work. He says that God in the cross of Christ has dealt with the work under our work. Here's what he means. He means that work isn't just the way we pay the bills. It's of particular significance. Right? It's a place where we find meaning. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, before there's a fall, there's still work. There's not toil, but there is work, right? Adam and Eve are set in the garden to tend for the garden. They're called to rule over the earth as God's vice regents. They have a job to do. The fall makes that futile and toil and by the sweat of the brow, but we need work. We're designed for work. But the problem is we have a tendency to elevate the significance of work, and so now we work to justify ourselves, to validate our existence, right? To make sure that we're secure, we use it as, a, as a, uh, a mode of idolatry. But Jesus so significantly deals with those things, gives us the security and the significance and the meaning that we're looking for, that although we still work, we don't work for the same reasons. We don't work to achieve rest, but from a place of rest. Okay? So, the last thing we should mention, here the Sabbath is a really big deal, right? They're to honor it, they're to keep it. Does that mean that we as Christians are required, even if it's on Sunday or instead of Saturday, is this something that we still need to do? After all, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Many, many times in the New Testament, it says that we're not to be obsessive about days and holidays, that we're not allow anyone to hold us captive to their conscience on these things. And so the significance of the Sabbath has been fulfilled, just like the tabernacle, just like the sacrifices, just like circumcision. But the principle of the Sabbath is just the way you were built. Okay? God gave you a seven-day work week and a six-day ability. And if you don't recognize that, if you live a life like a seven-day person when you're really just a six-day person, you will pay for it. Not only that, but this recognition that uh, one of the definitions of slavery is that you are not your own and you just have to keep working. It doesn't matter if you choose your boss. It doesn't matter if you're your own boss. If you work a job, job that you work all the time, you're a slave. And the Sabbath is a proclamation of freedom. 
It's a proclamation of God's provision. In fact, deeper than that, and this is something I preach to myself all the time, it's a proclamation that you're not God. That today, the universe can function without your help. That today, the people who rely on you or the work that's not getting done, God's totally capable of taking care of. And so this is not something for us to be rigid and religious about, especially not something to hold over other people's heads. And clearly, in Jesus' own words, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so it shouldn't be a burden, whatever it looks like. But it should be a part of your rhythm of life. Okay? So that's every seven days, but their calendar is full of special holidays on top of that. Verse 4. There, uh, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month, the feasts of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So the two at the beginning go together. We never find them apart. Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. Passover is on a single day on the 14th, and then for the next seven days, beginning the next morning, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 7, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days, and on the seventh day is a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work. Okay, so here what we see is on the 14th, they take the day off, and then although they go back to work for the next six days, on the seventh day, the last day of, um, of unleavened bread, they take the day off. Remember that this festival is rooted in the story of the Exodus. Because God delivered them so miraculously out of Egypt and because the angel of death passed over them, they're to constantly remember that God saved them from Egypt through this practice. Notice once again that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right, this seven-day consecration festival, follows Passover, not leads up to it. The recognition is that God saved them so they should be holy, not be holy so God will save you. So that's the first two festivals, and then we have the next one in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I will give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. So notice first, this isn't a festival they can celebrate in the wilderness because they're not planting anything. We'll see two different types of holidays across this calendar. On the one hand, there are memorial holidays that point back to something that God has done. On the other hand, there are harvest holidays that have to do with the fact that God is providing for them. This is the first one, and it's called the Feast of First Fruits. So when they come into the land, they're to have this feast known as the First Fruits. And so uh, it says, once you reap the harvest, bring the sheaf of the first fruits to your harvest to the priest. Verse 11, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Okay, now here's something that is once again unique to Judaism in its day and age. All of the other religions, the ones who worship Baal, who was a fertility god, uh, the ones who worship the Egyptian gods, they would have festivals to manipulate the gods into a good harvest. There's none of that in Israel. They're to expect God to provide, and when he does, to thank him for that provision. Okay? There's no manipulating God in this. It's recognizing God as a good provider and responding to it. It goes directly against the grain of the cultures around Israel. And so what do they do? They bring in the first part of their crop and they wave it before the Lord as a recognition of thanksgiving. Um, verse 12, on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering for the Lord. 
and a grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you'll eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you've brought the offering of your God. It's a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling. Now, two things before we move on. First, I want you to notice where this day falls on the calendar. It says the day after the Sabbath. Okay. Now, there are three possibilities here. One, when the grain is ripe, you wait till the next Sabbath, and then on that Monday is the Feast of First Fruits. Okay. Maybe they're recognizing that the farming calendar can't be consistent. So when you start the harvest, that's the day it begins. Second possibility, this is the day after the final day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay. And so what we have actually here is three festivals back to back, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits. But there is one more possibility, and it's the one that I'm most drawn to, not only because this is how most Jews celebrate it, but also for another reason that I'll bring up later, which is that this is the Sabbath following Passover, okay? And so Passover and then the next day, which is also the day that uh, of unleavened bread begins, is also the day of first fruits. Now, the second thing I wanted to point out to you is that it says here that nobody is to eat of any grain of any kind until this time. Now, here's a significance we probably don't get in the modern world. But can you imagine with me if you're a farmer and you spend all of this time, you know, plowing the field, planting the seeds, waiting for it to grow, and then when you harvest the first night, and then you bake the bread, right? And then you bring it in, and that dinner that night that's a celebration of the harvest, you eat the first taste of all of your labor. Can you imagine that's kind of a high point in the year, right? Because your work is finally paid off. But in Israel, that can't happen until recognition is given to God. That's why it's called the first fruits. There's lots of other fruits. There's the whole rest of the harvest, but the first of it belongs to the Lord. Okay? And so there's a recognition here of God as provider. Now, next we have the Feast of Weeks. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Pause. Okay, what does it say here? The next feast on the calendar from first fruits is 49 days, seven full weeks, okay? Continue here. Uh, verse 16, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Okay, so barley and wheat ha happen on different cycles. First fruits has to do with barley. This festival, what we call Pentecost, has to do with wheat, okay? But here, there's a schedule here, and between them is seven weeks, and so on the 50th day, they have the feast that we now call Pentecost. The reason we do that is because penta means 50, okay? And so, wh what are they to do here? Verse 17, you shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They should be fine flour, and they should be baked with leaven, as first fruits to the Lord. And you should present with the bread seven lambs, a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams, and they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with a grain offering, and their drink offering, and a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, notice that like Passover, and like the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Sevens, if you want to think of it that way, Seven Sevens in particular, um, is a one-day event, a one-day affair, okay? And so they have a wave offering, and they have sacrifices. In verse 20, 
The priest shall wave the bread offering of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. Remember what that means? It means no work. You shall not do any ordinary work. It's a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, we've already hit this command, but it's added here. And once again, we see this uniting in the book of Leviticus between our relationship with God. Bring the first fruits in and taking care of the poor. Right? And so not only are they to bring the first fruits, but they're not to reap up to the edges of their fields. They're to leave something so that the poor of the land can come in and, and basically make their own living on the margins. Okay? God cares for the poor. And so he puts it right here. And the next feast we know is the Feast of Trumpets. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 24, speak to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month. Okay, do you see that? So we've moved all the way to the other side of the calendar. Whereas we were in the first month, and then, you know, we got a week, and then a day, and then seven weeks, so we got into the spring. Now, all the way up to the seventh month, which um, Israel is a lunar calendar, but we're talking about September, October, usually, okay? So in the fall, uh, it says that there's going to be a day, verse 24 again, speak to the people of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You'll not do any work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Notice how simple that is. This festival is just the blowing of a trumpet and a day off. Most likely, the reason is because the seventh month of Israel is the holiest month. If you haven't caught on yet, seven's a big deal in this chapter. Every seventh day, right, a seventh day uh, um, feast of unleavened bread, and then seven weeks of seven days, Pentecost, and now in the seventh month on the first day, and there's two more festivals within the seventh month. And so there's kind of a proclamation in this trumpet um, that's the announcing of this thing. And then we get to the Day of Atonement. Now, back in chapter 16, we already covered this extensively, but now we see where it fits in Israel's calendar, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Every other day that we've seen, every other festival is a feast. But the day of atonement is a fast. They're to afflict themselves, okay? That's what makes it unique. In fact, by the time we get to the New Testament, the Jews just refer to it as the fast because it's the only one on their calendar, okay? Um, So verse 28, you'll not do any work on that very day for it's a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Whoever's not afflicted on that very day should be cut off from his people. Whoever does any work on that very day, the person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It's a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. And so, like I said, the Jewish day begins at sundown. And so, from that point on, no eating for the day. No working for the day, and they're to afflict themselves, which means to take on those public forms of mourning that I already mentioned. Now, it doesn't mention it here, but what's going on during the Day of Atonement? Right, We have this sacrificial system. It's the one day when the high priest makes atonement for the whole people of Israel, taking blood all the way into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling it on the ark. 
right? It's the day when a goat is offered and killed and sprinkled there, and then another goat is, the sins are confessed, and it's run into the wilderness. That's the holiday that we're talking about. Then there's one last one here, verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths. So, trumpets, day one. Uh, atonement, day 14, and then the next day after this affliction is a seven-day festival, the final feast of the year called the Feast of Booths. We also call it the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'll tell you why. Because tabernacle is just a word that means tent, okay? And so booths are tents. That's where the imagery comes from. Notice what they're to do on that day. Verse 35, on the first day shall be a holy convocation. You'll not do any ordinary work. For seven days you'll present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present food offerings to the Lord. It's a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting the Lord's food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides your free offerings, free will offerings on which you give to the Lord. Now, notice here... um, this last one is called the Feast of Booths. We see that it's a week long plus a day and that there's all sorts of sacrifices involved. Um, and then there's something on top of that, something that makes it the Feast of Booths. Verse 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord for seven days. What do you see here? It's also a harvest. Okay? In the fall, we don't get the grain harvest. We basically get everything else, the grapes and the olives and all of that. Okay. And so this is the other harvest event. And so remember here, we've seen, um, we've seen all of the harvests have this tendency of orienting it around God. Verse 40, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It's a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. So they're to take these branches and these palm branches uh, and pieces of willow, and they're to build a little tiny uh, Uh, shelter on their roofs and live under the stars in these shelters for a week's time, okay? Now, we'll learn later that they're actually supposed to assemble this in such a way that they're not waterproof. In fact, that you can see the stars through the shelter. Um, But here's, uh, here's the point, verse 43. Why? That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. And so what is this reflecting on? God's provision in the wilderness. Okay. They're to remember this time when God watched over them, protected them, provided for them as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so every year on the 15th day of the seventh month, they move out of their house to reflect on God's good provision and remember what God has done. And so basically there's two things here. There's harvest in the land and then there's remembering how they got to the land. Do you see that? And then right in the center is this day of atonement, this focal point of sacrifice. Now, all of these festivals point to things that we've already covered. Um, God as provider and therefore, uh, therefore being worthy of us recognizing where our stuff comes from. 
uh, God as deliverer and reflecting back on what God has done for us. But there's one other thing that's really intriguing about this calendar, okay? Here we see seven festivals, and we can see them laid across the calendar, and in it we get a calendar year. Some commentators and teachers call this the prophetic calendar, and here's why, okay? Because when we get to the New Testament, the very first festival is what? Passover, and that's the one that Jesus dies during, okay? In fact, it's the one that he takes the celebration of and slightly changes it to introduce through the Lord's Supper what we call communion, right? That's on the eve of Passover that that happens, And that's why in the New Testament it points to Jesus as being the Passover lamb. But here's what's even more exciting, okay? If the Jews have got it right and the feast of first fruits is to be offered on the Sabbath following the Passover, that would be Sunday morning. That's the day that Jesus rose. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection, So he's the sacrifice in the Passover lamb, and then his resurrection is the beginning of what God is making available for us, that death is no longer the end because of what Jesus has done. And so just like we will be resurrected, first Jesus was, okay? And then we count seven weeks and we get to Pentecost. Jesus appears to his disciples for 40 days, then he ascends into heaven and he says, wait in Jerusalem until I send out your spirit. And it tells us in the book of Acts chapter 2 that it was during the festival of Pentecost that the spirit came in the form, uh, you know, of fire with the sound of wind. uh, And suddenly, these 120 people in this prayer meeting, doing what Jesus asked them to and waiting, begin to speak in languages they don't know. And they rush out into streets proclaiming, proclaiming the goodness of God and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Now, why is that significant? There are three festivals that the Jews were required to attend if you were male and over the age of 13. Let's see if I can do this right. Passover, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement. No, that's not right. It's tabernacles, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Anyways, three that they're required. So what does this mean? It means Jerusalem is packed full of Jews from all over the world. In fact, listen to this list that Luke gives us in the book of Acts chapter 2 for who's there and present. So these 120 people run out speaking languages that they don't know, and this is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 6. And at this sound, a multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is this that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthenans and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Okay, now what happens next? Peter gathers this mixed multitude of languages, gathers their attention, and he explains what they're observing. That this is what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2 when he said that in that day I will pour out on my manservant and my maidservant the Holy Spirit and they shall prophesy, right? And he, he says that this is happening, that's what you're observing, and he says the reason it's happening is because our Messiah has come 
And although you put him to death, it was according to the plan of God. He's paid for your sins and now he's resurrected. And all of you can now receive the benefit of that that you're now witnessing in the Holy Spirit. And it says that 3,000 people responded to that message and became Christians in those days. Now, what is Pentecost? Remember, it's a first fruits festival. And so what does the day of Pentecost represent? It represents the whole harvest. It represents all the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would respond to the gospel and become Christians. And it happens on the day of Pentecost. So the first three, sorry, the first four festivals, because we've also got um, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in there, all have this significance, all fulfilled by Jesus and, and this happening in the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now what happens next in the calendar? Months and months go by with nothing, and it's not until the seventh month that stuff happens again. Now, what I just shared with you, everybody agrees on. It's not merely that those things seem like they were fulfilled in Jesus' doing. They happened on the day that the holiday was being celebrated, okay? So the significance is very strong. But some go, isn't it likely, isn't it possible that the other ones also have Christ-oriented significance? In fact, isn't it possible that when the Bible talks about Jesus returning, that he'll fulfill the significance of the coming festivals, the fall festivals, just as he did the spring one? And actually, I think it's pretty compelling because what's the first one? How does the seventh month open? With the Feast of Trumpets. Now, if you read the New Testament very closely, the return of Jesus is marked over and over again in every passage by the sound of trumpets. Okay. And then what do we have next? We have the Day of Atonement. And this is the one place where you go, well, but we've talked about the significance of that. Didn't Jesus fulfill that? Those who maintain the prophetic calendar say, yeah, that's true, but don't forget that the Day of Atonement was bound up especially in the people of Israel mourning and fasting. And so they turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, when Zechariah prophesying about a time that's coming says that they, Israel, will look on him who they have pierced and mourn as for an only son. That Jesus will make himself known to the Jews and they'll connect it together. They'll go, not only this is our Messiah, but Jesus is our Messiah, the one who was crucified. And they'll mourn and they'll weep because they'll recognize the significance of all these things. And it will be a, a, a holy convocation, a fasting period, a, a recognition. And then we have one festival left, the Feast of Booths. Now, here's another reason why I find the prophetic calendar to be significant. Because in the book of Zechariah, after that passage I just quoted in chapter 12, chapter 14 tells us that when God sets everything right and brings in his kingdom, the festival that everybody will celebrate is the Feast of Booths. And it won't just be for Jews, but for all nations. And if they don't come to Israel and celebrate, then they won't receive any rain. And so it ties this significance together. And so in some way, the Feast of Tabernacles has to, be, has to deal with the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom. That when he comes up, he's going to set up a throne and rule and reign. And so it's intriguing, isn't it? It's interesting that this calendar is of significance, but at the same time, it shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus, when he's speaking to those who know this book best, the Pharisees who have memorized everything that we've read tonight and more, he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think they have li you find life, but it is they that testify of me. He says, you can't understand what the Old, Old Testament is about if you don't understand how it relates to me. 
And so we've seen that that's true of the priests. We've seen that it's true of the sacrifices. We've seen that it's true of the Sabbath. Is it really that surprising that it's true of the festivals as well? So, let's finish very quickly chapter 24. Just so Richard doesn't get on me, we still have one verse in chapter 23 left to read. Verse 44, thus Moses declared the people of Israel appointed feasts for the Lord. 24 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light might be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold. Before the Lord, excuse me, before the Lord regularly. Now, I want you to notice this in contrast to what we just read. 23 is about the high holy days, one a week and then the big festivals, but this is about the daily. 23 involves the things that the priests would probably get excited about. Can you imagine being the high priest and feeling the anticipation and the weight that comes with the Day of Atonement? But what about getting up early every morning to make sure the lamps are lit? In fact, it goes on and look at verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake, bake 12 loaves of it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. You'll put in pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, that means weekly, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It's from the people of Israel, a covenant forever. Okay, in fact, what it literally says there is a covenant continuously, which is what it said about the light on a lamp as well. Verse 9, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it's for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. So the emphasis here is, is that, that their role as priests is not just about the exciting holidays and the high holy days. There's also this mundanity to it. And it's in two places. They're to keep the fire and the lamps burning so that the holy place is always lit, and they're to keep the bread of the presence fresh and replaced throughout the year. I think clearly the thing that this points to is, is the continuity of what God wants for Israel. Okay? And it's, it's fascinating here that the two that he chooses to focus on, because there's other daily things. There's the morning and evening sacrifices, right, that happen every day. There's a burnt offering in the morning and a burnt offering in the evening. But the two here are light and bread. Now, if you want to take the festivals that we just talked about and the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices and understand how they relate to Jesus, there's no better place to read except maybe the book of Hebrews. There's no better gospel to read than the gospel of John. John's gospel is written to the Jews after 70 A.D. Now, why is that important? Because in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. After that, no more priesthood. No more sacrifices. In fact, Israel doesn't even return to the land of Israel until the 1940s. Okay? They're dispersed at that point. And so John writes to a Jewish audience that is going, where is God now? And he takes all of those things and he points to them being fulfilled in Jesus. And so in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus attend Passover. We see Jesus attend the Feast of Booths. We see Jesus attend Hanukkah, and while he's there, he says, I am the light of the world. That's what he says at the Festival of Lights. During the Feast of Tabernacles, while he's there, there's a festival where the priests pour out water, 
And it's on that day of the high day of the feast that he stands up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him drink. He's constantly pointing to himself as being the fulfillment of these things. In fact, it's in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the manna from heaven. He takes all of these significance on himself in the Gospel of John, which is funny because we tend to think of it as being the most universal and the least Jewish of the Gospels. But it's really the most Jewish. Just read it again. So, I wish we could end there on a high note. But the chapter, uh, chapter 24 doesn't end there, and it shouldn't surprise us. And here's why I say that. Because Leviticus has developed a pattern now, and the pattern is totally awesome, tainted by sin and death. And so we have the sacrificial system laid out, we have the priests ordained, we have the tabernacle open for business, and then Hophni and Phinehas run into the tabernacle and they're killed. Here we have the high holy calendar laid out and all of these things, uh, and then what happens in, in verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, okay, so notice this, it's a mixed marriage, okay, a Jew and Egyptian's child. You see, one of the things that you may not have noticed uh, reading through the story of Exodus is it's not only Israelites who leave. Some Egyptians get on board and they go, clearly their God is God. We should go with them. And so there's this mixed multitude that goes out. And one of the products of that group of people is a mixed marriage here between an Israelite woman and an Egyptian man. And it's his son that this story is about. And an Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. And they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear to him. Now when it says here he blasphemed the name, notice it doesn't even say the name of the Lord. It doesn't have to, right? They, he blasphemed the name. So they're fighting and what happens here is most likely more than him just um, swearing using the name Jehovah. He's probably actually pronouncing a curse on God himself. Most likely that's what it means. Okay, And so the idea here is that he's proclaiming uh, you know, the falseness of Israel's God in the camp of Israel in presence of the tabernacle. But he's a foreigner. So they don't know how to respond to this. And so look at what they do. Verse 12, they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all him who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And so he says, take him out of the camp. Let everybody who was in the presence of this lay their hands on the head. Now, what Milgram, who's a commentator, who's generally pretty helpful, points out in this is probably the idea here is that they've been defiled by hearing this. And so when they lay their hands on it, they, they cleanse themselves of it, and then they stone him to death. Now that's a very serious consequence, but one of the things we tend to forget is not only is this the nation of Israel, okay, but it's the nation of Israel who has the tabernacle and God dwelling in the midst. Okay? And so that changes the game, if you will, and makes this an incredibly serious crime. But there's another thing I think we have a tendency to miss in this which is we don't always take the reality of who God is serious enough, okay? An atheist in the camp of Israel is a threat to their existence. As much as an atheist in the world today is a threat to the eternal state of people around him. 
right? We can say it's no big deal. He's just a fool. He's saying those things. People are really good at listening to fools. And lives hang in the balance, right? Not just the, the livelihood of Israel, but, but their existence spiritually is on the ropes here. And so it's a very serious consequence that's taken here. And so, uh, verse 15, And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And then we have one final statement of, of how law is to work. And it's probably because we have capital punishment carried out here. So there's an explanation in verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. Now, when it says shall make it good there, what it's talking about is financial compensation. Do you see the difference in standard there? Kill a person made in the image of God, your life is forfeit. Kill an animal, you need to make sure that that's set right financially. Okay? But it sets apart animal and man. Why? Because man is the only one created in the image of God, reflecting God. And so an attack against God's reflection is an attack against God himself. It still cares about property, but here it says, uh, as it does in Genesis chapter 9, that if any man spills blood, his blood shall be spilled. Verse 19, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he's given a person shall be given to him. Now, that can sound uh, cruel, but in actuality, it's the opposite. It's avoiding cruel and unusual punishment. It's saying there should be an equal measure of punishment for loss. And it's also pointing out that we as human beings are responsible for what we do to other people. And so, um, the last thing it does here is it sets two limitations. One, no upping the ante. And we have to recognize the danger of that. In fact, to this day, in certain Eastern cultures, there's the possibility of blood killings, right? Of vengeance being taken. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth, and more and more people die. This law maintains a standard. But on top of that, this is to be administered by the people as a whole. It's not a place for vengeance, okay? And so if somebody punches you in the face and knocks out a tooth, you don't go, okay, it is my destiny in life to knock a tooth out of his face now. In fact, Jesus criticizes that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who use you. He's not laying this law aside. He's dealing with the reality of vengeance. Paul gets this. In Romans 13, he says, Do not repay evil for evil, because God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But then he goes on in a few verses, and he says that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. Okay? If someone robs your house, it's appropriate to call the cops. It's not appropriate to go and rob their house. Okay? That's the difference. And that's built into this law. Um... Verse 21, whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, there is something I just want to plop in your head there, because I think it's intriguing. It finishes by saying, thus they put the blasphemer to death. Doesn't that seem interesting? 
the emphasis has been if you kill a man, you shall be killed. And now here's a man who's spoken blasphemously and he's killed and it sees that as an application of this. Why? Because there's a direct correlation between defacing God's image and his property in humankind and blaspheming his name. That's the only way I know how to tie this passage together. It holds those two things together. There's some significance there. Now, next week we will finish the book of Leviticus. We have three chapters left. I'm sure some of you are relieved to hear that. Um, The following week we will have a night of worship and we'll do some readings from the book of Leviticus and we'll have some times of prayer and we'll do that before we move on. But let's go ahead and pray and close out tonight. God, this whole passage lays out the holy things and how to treat them, and it culminates in this mistreatment of the most holy thing, you. And we're thankful, Lord, that because of what Jesus has done, we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace, that it's no longer with fear and trembling, that you've made us clean on the inside to such a degree that we no longer have to worry about clean and unclean on the outside. That as you said in the Sermon on the Mount, you didn't come to abolish the law, but so that the law might be fulfilled. And we rejoice in the fact that you fulfilled it on our behalf. But I pray that that wouldn't lead us to neglect the reality of who you are and your holiness. As we read last week in Leviticus, we are called to be holy as you are holy. And Peter makes that clear when he quotes it for us in his epistle. And so I pray, Lord, we would be drawn uh, to be like you because you are good. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.